Welcome to another episode of the Wild Voices Project podcast with me, Matt Williams. Now, I know it's been quite some time since I've published an episode. A new house, a new girlfriend, a new dog and a new baby mean that life has been somewhat busy for the past 12 months. So I put the podcast on the back burner for a while. But we're back and I hope you can forgive us for this uh, somewhat extended pause. And to begin with, I'm going to bring you some episodes that were recorded around a year ago, just before we took that break. So in listening to this episode and some of the upcoming ones, please bear in mind that they are around 12 months old and were recorded prior to the coronavirus epidemic and to many other global events that are of relevance to these issues. But I still believe that in the majority of cases, there's huge, timeless value in these conversations that won't have been made obsolete by the passage of 12 months. I also hope that you and your loved ones are doing very well during this strange and concerning time. Many of us are very privileged by having access to nature and the outdoors right now, and I recognise that both I and many of my guests fall into that category. I hope that hearing about wildlife and nature might also provide some solace to some people during this time too. This episode is a cracker. It's with the so-called godfather of biodiversity, Professor Thomas Lovejoy. Tom Lovejoy is a senior fellow at the United Nations Foundation, an expert on climate and biological dynamics in the Amazon. He was previously the biodiversity advisor to the World Bank and is known for being the first person to coin the word biodiversity. In this episode, we discussed using high mist nets to catch spine-tailed swifts in the Amazon rainforest, the tipping points caused by fragmentation that could lead to the irreversible dieback of the Amazon, and how he keeps up his energy levels for office work and advising decision makers, and achieves an emotional and professional reset at the start of each working day. So, I hope you enjoy the episode. The Wild Voices Project podcast tells the stories of the people saving nature. You can find us online at www.wildvoicesproject.org and at wildvoicesproj on Twitter. And you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Now, without any further ado, let's dive in. start where I often start and hopefully this isn't too much of a curveball by asking where your interest in wildlife or the environment first began well you know I am um, told that when I was small I was outdoors all the time Uh, and I know I was interested in animals but I think it was particularly when I was told I was going to be go off to school at the age of 14 and I visited a school called Millbrook School that had a zoo that I decided I didn't want to look anywhere else that's where I wanted to go to school Uh, and I of course had no idea that I would get interested in science The teacher who had started the zoo, and the zoo still exists uh, 70, 
five plus years later with students helping to breed endangered species. Uh, it's called the Trevor Zoo. It's the smallest accredited zoo uh, in the United States. And the science teacher taught biology and you had to take biology each, either the first year or the second year. And with enormous prescience, I announced I would take it the first year and get it over with. And with only three weeks of that classroom, uh, he totally changed my orientation in life. And I became interested in the variety of plants and animals, and which, of course, today we call that biological diversity. And I've never been able to get enough ever since. And I want to come on to that phrase, biological diversity. But just, just first about the zoo, did you get involved through your biology classes in helping to care for the animals? What was it about the zoo in particular that interested you? So this, the students, of course, help run the zoo. <clears throat> and uh, so I was a member of the so-called zoo squad from day one. And initially, I took care of a, a gray squirrel, and from then it went on to other more interesting things, including at one point a cheetah. Uh, so I had a really exciting time being a zoo guy. <laughs> and did your did your interest at that time solely focus on the the animals in captivity at the zoo at school, or did you start to explore? the outdoors environment and nature more widely, or did that come later on? Well, that's a very fair question. And uh, this school is situated in some of the most gorgeous countryside north of New York that you can imagine. And a lot of the biology class assignments involved going out into nature and learning to identify trees from their twigs in winter or, or ex exploring for different kinds of mosses. Uh, so from the beginning, there was outside as well as inside the zoo. Okay. Um, and could you take us sort of briefly through the trajectory that then led you to, to your first ever trip to the Amazon? And do you remember distinctly your first ever visit to the Amazon? Uh, well, I certainly do, but it, it took a few steps to get there. Uh, so when I graduated from Millbrook, I ended up going to Yale. And on my first day, I met my freshman advisor, an ornithologist named Philip Humphrey. Uh, and then he later went on to the Smithsonian. And I took a year off and did an expedition when they were building the high dam at Aswan for the Peabody Museum of Natural History at Yale. Uh, and then I was back just starting in graduate school when uh, Phil Humphrey came through on a visit and said to me that if I wrote a letter to Wilbur Downs at the Rockefeller Foundation, I could probably get the support to go spend the summer with him in the Amazon. So that was June of 1965. Uh, and essentially, I never looked back, uh, even though I had at one point 
uh, was besotted with East Africa and thought I would study montane birds in East Africa. Uh, you know, just a couple days in the Amazon and being in this incredible tropical wilderness, which was then 97% intact and as big as the 48 continuous contiguous U.S. states, uh, I never looked back. I mean, it was like waking up inside a Christmas stocking that had no end to it, right? Uh, there was always something new and interesting. And so that was 1965. And so I, when, when it came time to think about actually doing uh, my PhD research, uh, I returned to the Amazon and lived there for two years. Uh, and uh, my wife and I lived in Belang, the port city of the Amazon. I uh, had our twin daughters born in Brazil. Uh, and I commuted three days a week to the forest to study birds. Uh, and so that was essentially a, a life-changing, life-determining event. Do you have any particularly strong memories from maybe that first ever trip or some of the first trips to the Amazon that really kind of helped to crystallize in your mind the decision that that was where you wanted to spend at least, a, you know, a chunk of time? Well, you know, the amazing thing is when you first go into a rainforest like the Amazon, your first reaction is, hey, what's the big deal? You don't really see very much except a lot of plants. And then you look a little more closely and you see a lot of ants. Uh, and then you begin to see a few other things. But many of the, the vertebrate species, for example, in these forests actually spend most of their time hiding from each other. So they're not easy to see. And only when you develop a certain skill and patience uh, do you get to see them. Uh, and it's almost always a wonderful surprise. During those first trips, were there any particular surprises, particular encounters with wildlife that you remember? Uh, well, that's a really interesting question. Um, so one of the really interesting things we did was uh, we had organized the nets, the mist nets that ornithologists used to catch birds in order to ban them. Mm -hmm. uh, we'd actually organized them to be sort of like a giant sail. So you could pull it up into the canopy and study birds that flew way above our heads. And you would visit these nets like every 45 minutes and you just never knew what would be in them. Uh, but quite remarkably, the dean of South American ornithologists, uh, a German naturalized to Brazil named Helmut Sick, had come up to 
Beilang, the port city of the Amazon, uh, to do some field work. And one of the things he was hoping to do was uh, get a specimen of a spine-tailed swift. Well, as you know, swifts fly really high above the forest, right? So uh, it was not an easy thing to do. And so we sort of joked with him and said, well, come on out tomorrow. We're going to use our high nets for the first time and we'll catch you some. And lo and behold, on the first sort of run around the nets, uh, we pulled down one of the high nets and there were not one, but two spiny tailed swifts. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, that's that's sort of the way it goes in the rainforest. You never know what's going to happen, and that makes it extra fun. Presumably, that was one of the first times that that species had ever been ringed or banded. Uh, well, these two specimens actually ended up in the museum in Rio. Uh, normally, we didn't take specimens, but for helmet sick, we did. But it certainly was probably one of the first times that it had ever been caught in a net for example. So, uh, and just to give you some sense of what it was like, there were, there were no field guides. There were no English names for any of these birds. Uh, I had to make my own field guide by taking photographs with a, polar, with a Polaroid camera, which most people listening to this will not even know what it was. Uh, but was a technology at the time that gave you the photograph uh, within a minute or two of taking it. And so I made a, I made a field guide taking Polaroid photographs, Polaroid photographs of uh, museum specimens all laid out as though they might be part of a uh, illustration in a field guide. Uh, so it was, it was a real adventure. So in these early trips and this early research um, research period for you, was part of what you were doing simply documenting species for the first time or describing them for the first time? Or were there specific hypotheses that you were testing? So, so what I had actually wanted to do uh, was to essentially document the vertical stratification of bird life uh, in the forests. Uh, and most of the species were known. Some of them that we caught hadn't been known from that location before, but we didn't discover a new species in the process. Uh, and then, then I had this wonderful thing fall in my lap, which was... Uh, getting the identification of the trees within a meter of all of my nets. Uh, so that kind of information about essentially the forest uh, around a mist net in a tropical forest uh, was without precedent. And so in the end, rather than looking at vertical stratification, I compared the way in which bird species uh, diversity and composition change relative to tree species diversity and composition over different uh, gradients and found 
quite to my amazement, that essentially the most abundant bird species were the same ones in all the different kinds of forest I was working in. Um, and that's because they did things that, that worked in almost any kind of forest. So one of the, the most abundant was a little wedge-billed woodcreeper, which at least in one of the forests added up to 14% of all the birds we caught. Uh, and it specialized on very tiny branches, uh, hunting along them for insects for its food. And that sort of worked in any kind of forest. Uh, it wasn't specialized on a particular set of insect species. It was, it was specialized on the ones that lived uh, on branches that were relatively small in diameter. Uh, and that worked whatever kind of forest you were in. And in preparing for this conversation, I did some reading about the the significant research you've done into rainforest fragmentation, <clears throat> which which it sounds like overlaps a little bit with some of the findings that you were making then. Some of the conclusions that I I read in your research around rainforest fragmentation was that, uh, well, I'm, I'm sure you'll correct me if I describe this inaccurately, but that generalist species... Um, are often a little bit more resistant or less vulnerable to fragmentation, whereas specialist species or species that are thinly distributed can be more vulnerable to it. I was wondering if maybe you could just say a little bit more and probably more accurately than I just have about rainforest fragmentation and how it differs from what we might simply think of as deforestation or simple loss of trees, why it's a bit more complicated than that. So the the really interesting aspect of all of this is habitat fragmentation, forest fragmentation, forests of any sort being fragmented was not considered a conservation issue until the beginning of the 1970s. And at that point, uh, there was a new theory out called the theory of island biogeography, which uh, endeavored to explain why you got different numbers of species on different kinds of islands. And somebody, two or three people actually, raised the question, I wonder whether that might apply to islands of remnant vegetation. Uh, and then there was a huge controversy because nobody had any data. Uh, and I was working for the World Wildlife Fund United States, advancing projects to the board. And I realized that unless we understood habitat fragmentation, we probably didn't know whether any of those projects would work in the end. Uh, and it was just sort of a wonderful, uh, fortuitous coming together of some things that I knew that led me to suggest, well, maybe in the Brazilian Amazon, where you were required to leave 50% of any project you were working on in forest, maybe that 50% could be arranged to have a giant experiment. Uh, and the National Science Foundation bought me an air ticket to go to Manaus, never expecting me to succeed, but giving me the chance. And with an hour 
visiting the head of the National Institute for Amazon Research, uh, I had his enthusiastic cooperation. And later that afternoon, the enthusiastic cooperation of the essentially the land authority in the region north of Manaus, where the project uh, ultimately took place. Why, so, just, just to pause on that for a moment, why do you think there was such a gulf between the the lack of faith in your your potential success of uh, your employers and then the, the kind of immediate success and buy-in of the people at the local local level? So it was actually the National Science Foundation who just, they just thought, well, we'll buy you a ticket, but the chance of you being able to pull this off uh, is really small. And that's in part because it isn't always easy to do research in Brazil, at least at that point it wasn't. Mm -hmm. uh, but the difference was that I actually had had two years living in Brazil. Uh, I had embraced Brazilian culture with enthusiasm. I spoke Portuguese. And one of the things about Brazilians very often is, is they have a great imagination. Uh, and I think the idea of this project uh, was clear and simple and just, uh, just it's seized their imagination. So that was back in the latter 1970s. Uh, and we started it in 1979, and it's now in year 39 going on 40. And could you say a little bit about some of the findings that I sort of tried to describe a moment ago about the, the impacts of forest fragmentation? I think one of the things that I found particularly interesting was around some of the changes to ecosystem functions at the edge. So things like leaf litter accumulation and increased uh, vulnerability to, to forest fires. So, uh, yeah, let's set aside what it actually means for the biodiversity that was mm. in one of those fragments uh, prior to isolation. So a lot of things happen around the edge. Um, and one of the things that happens is light penetrates from the side where it would have been dark before. Uh, you get uh, a lot of dry air entering what is normally a very moist air habitat uh, coming off the deforested areas. Uh, you have temperature increase. You have vulnerability to big wind events, which uh, normally have to go, the wind essentially travels over the top of a forest. Uh, but when you have a fragment sort of standing out in the middle of nowhere, it can catch these trees from the side and most of them are shallow rooted and so they, they go over. Um, and um, so you lose a lot of biomass and uh, you also get uh, a decline in uh, rate of decomposition. Uh, and then you get sort of a healing process in which a lot of vines and things grow up on the edge and begin to close it off a bit from the light and the, and the heat and the wind from outside. Uh, but it's not like the original forest. Uh, 
So you get really dramatic changes. But I, I should also say we, you know, fundamental to our whole exercise was to try and understand what fragmentation does to the biodiversity of intact forests. Uh, and basically the, the idea, but it needed to be documented and demonstrated, uh, was that once a fragment was no longer part of continuous forest, uh, it included plants and animals that actually could not survive over the long term except as part of a larger forest and they would wink out one by one uh, and it was sort of the idea was it's, it was sort of analogous to a radioactive mineral losing radioactivity and becoming uh, a simpler uh, element only in this case it was an ecosystem losing species and it it took us a good 20 years plus to actually nail that down. But a, uh, a uh, postdoc named Gonzalo Ferreis uh, was able to do that uh, and, and publish one of our most important papers in 2003, which showed that a 100-hectare patch of forest uh, which would be, you know, like 250 acres. A uh, 100-hectare patch of forest loses 50%, namely half, of all the forest interior bird species in less than 15 years. And those are all the bird species that avoid the sunlight, because their habitat cue for them is to be in the dark of the forest. Uh, and they are very reluctant to, to go out into the sunlight. Uh, but they can't make it, at least, you know, essentially half of them in 15 years uh, in a 100-hectare plot. Uh, so that basically put the whole controversy that had been going on uh, to bed. Uh, and, but that was just, you know, that was the simple result. And we continue to chronicle uh, and record uh, a whole variety of, of changes. Uh, and have also had the interesting additional opportunity uh, to study second growth recovering uh, outside of the forest and how that influences everything um, and uh, sort of part way through this experiment the the uh, subsidies which encouraged the local ranchers uh, to cut down the forest and to raise cattle which basically is not very economic but it is if you get subsidies uh, those subsidies were removed uh, and as a consequence, uh, we be, the, the, the ranches basically ceased to operate as cattle ranches uh, in any meaningful way. And the vegetation began to re recover around 
our fragments, which was threatening our experiment, of course. <laughs> so we have we have re-isolated our fragments three times already, uh, but it also gave us the opportunity to study that process of vegetation succession uh, and understand a lot about that, but also about how temporarily, while that that vegetation uh, has grown up around a fragment, it creates opportunities for some species, uh, like the birds that follow army ants, uh, to return. Uh, so it's it's been an interesting dynamic. We didn't allow it to spoil the experiment, but basically it enriched what we've been able to study and understand. That's really interesting. And and my understanding, again, correct me if I'm wrong, is that the work that you and your team have done on this has shown that has helped to show that there's a minimum uh, threshold in terms of area of forest that can be functional, so 400 square miles, and that in turn has been able to influence government and other conservation policy. So, so the original purpose of this project uh, and its original grand name <laughs> uh, was uh, the minimum critical size of ecosystems. You know, what would be uh, the minimum amount of area uh, of central Amazonian forest so that at any time in the future, if you sampled it, you get the same species number as if you were sampling continuous forest and we haven't nailed that down completely but we think around a thousand square kilometers or a hundred thousand uh hectares is probably representative for the central amazon uh and so the idea is you know if if 10 hectares holds 295 species of trees uh, in continuous forests, how big an area do you need uh, of isolated forests? So 100, 500 years, whatever, from now you could go in and sample 100 hectares and still get 295 species of trees. Um, and one of, one of the most striking things that I've read in in some of the papers that I was I was reading was that uh, your, your team's research and your research has shown that the thresholds for key tipping points in terms of loss of forest in the Amazon and functions like the Amazon as a forest being able to create its own rainfall, for example, the thresholds for loss of forest which might result in those tipping points are lower than we previously th thought so around perhaps 20 or 25 percent of the loss of forest whereas previously we might have thought we could quote unquote get away with more loss of forest before those tipping points kicked in so one of the interesting things that uh, was just being discovered as we were starting the uh, fragments project uh, was done by a Brazilian scientist named Aeneas Salati, S-A-L-A-T-I. Aeneas is in the Aeneid. And he looked at oxygen isotope ratios in rainwater from the Atlantic to the Peruvian border and proved for the very first time uh, that 
not only did the Amazon essentially make half of its own rainfall, but that the old idea that vegetation was simply the consequence of climate and had no influence on climate whatsoever uh, was invalid. Uh, and so that started to change how people thought about the relationship between vegetation and climate. And what happens in the Amazon is uh, moisture comes in off the tropical Atlantic. The wind direction uh, is invariably from the Atlantic to the Andes. Uh, some of that moisture drops as rain uh, pretty close to the Atlantic Ocean. And then a significant portion of it goes back into the passing air mass from evaporation off the complex surfaces of the forest uh, and through transpiration through the leaves. So from the very beginning, knowing that, there was a question, you know, how much deforestation would it take to cause this hydrological cycle to begin to degrade to a point where it no longer pr produced enough rain for a rainforest. And uh, that tipping point, as it were, seemed so far away that we didn't have any great sense of urgency about trying to figure out where that might be. Uh, but my uh, very prominent colleague, Carlos Nobre, and I used to talk about it uh, from time to time. And Carlos is the leading climate scientist for all of South America. Uh, and he got a graduate student to model it. And the model suggested, well, maybe at 30 to 40% deforestation, uh, you would get uh, a tipping point uh, where at least the Southern and Eastern Amazon would get insufficient rainfall and basically you get Amazon dieback and it would convert to some kind of savanna vegetation. And so that was interesting, but 30 or 40% certainly seemed very, very far away. Uh, but over the ensuing decades, uh, two other things have begun to impact. Uh, one is uh, the effects of climate change itself. Uh, and another is the impact of the widespread use of fire as deforestation progressed. Mm. Uh, and so it seemed very reasonable to us that those would, three would act synergistically and uh, without actually doing a, a model, uh, you could probably figure out that the tipping point would be around 20 to 25% deforestation. And the reason we wrote our piece in Science Advances last year is because we think you can actually see the first flickers of that tipping uh, in the historic droughts that occurred in 2005, 2010, and 2016. Uh, and so, we decided to write that and 
basically say that's where we think it is. And we also think it's really stupid to find out exactly where it is by actually tipping it. And Tom, just to put that in context, what sort of percentage of deforestation are we at today? Well, it's pretty close to 20% in the Brazilian Amazon. Right. So this, this, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this are very aware of the Amazon, its importance, some of the threats to it. But in your own words, could you say why the Amazon its bio, and its biodiversity are important for people who perhaps live a long way away from it? Uh, would you say that again? So could you say in your own words why the Amazon and its biodiversity are important for people all around the world? So it's uh, so in terms of the climate system, uh, the amount of water that's in the Amazon is is just amazing. It's like 20% of the world's river water. Uh, and the moisture in the atmosphere actually plays important roles uh, in rainfall outside of the Amazon. So that's important for Brazilian agriculture. South of the Amazon, for example, it actually goes as far as northern Argentina. Uh, but then there's then there is the incredible biodiversity that is in the Amazon, uh, which you could characterize as one of the greatest libraries for the life sciences uh, on the entire planet. Uh, it's really hard to say, you know, what percentage of all terrestrial biodiversity is in the Amazon, but it's it's got to be a big number, something like 20% or, or more. And any one of those at any time can transform our understanding of the life sciences. And anybody who takes an ACE inhibitor for uh, hypertension, for blood pressure, anywhere in the world is actually benefiting from one of those discoveries, uh, which came about totally accidentally, like these things often do. Uh, and in this particular case, uh, somebody was in the south of Brazil uh, at the Butantan Institute trying to understand how the poison, the venom of the Bushmaster, uh, the big viper, actually works. And in the process, they discovered a totally unknown regulation system for blood pressure in mammals called the angiotensin system. And while you can't take snake venom uh, as a medicine, not because it'll poison you, but because your digestive system will denature it, uh, so you don't get any action. Uh, knowing that the angio angiotensin system existed, uh, it was possible for pharmaceutical chemists uh, at, at uh, I think it was Squibb, to develop the first of the the uh, angiotes angiotensin uh, system regulatory drugs called Capitin. Uh, and as a group, they're known as ACE inhibitors. So literally tens of millions of people around the world, uh, probably hundreds of millions, live longer, healthier, more productive lives uh, because of that 
particular bit of Amazonian biology. Are there uh, any, sorry to cut across you, are there any um, potential medical applications of species that you're excited about at the moment? Uh, so I don't actually do a lot of that research myself. Uh, but I think what the important way to understand this uh, is that every species every day is figuring out new solutions and using already existing solutions to a whole set of biological problems that uh, they encounter in their existence. And any one of those at any time can turn out to be useful. So, uh, you know, the shortcut, if you can call it that, is to uh, actually learn from the indigenous people who have spent a lot of time trying to figure out which parts of the rainforest are useful for their particular kind of medicine. Um, or you can look at something like curare. Uh, which is a big complicated molecule, much too big and complicated to synthesize uh, economically. So all curare actually is extracted from the Amazon from a particular vine, and the Indians use it uh, to stun fish. Uh, they just chop up some of this vine and throw it in in the lagoon or whatever it is, and suddenly all the fish are up there gasping for air. Uh, but in medicine, it's used as a muscle relaxant in abdominal surgery. Uh, and then all that still comes directly out of the Amazon. Uh, what has never been done is to look at all that potential uh, in a sustained systemic way. And I think there's now some discussion about being able to do just that kind of thing. I'm perhaps jumping ahead slightly, but I'm going to risk doing that. Um, one of my questions later on was going to be around um, the the depth and nature and the financial mechanisms. But maybe we can leave that to the side for, for a little bit further down the conversation. But do you think that medical value of the Amazon has been to date perhaps unrecognized financially and do you think there's anything in that do you think there's an opportunity there that that's yet to be grasped uh, i don't think there's any question that it has not been recognized uh for the real potential that it has and there have been sporadic uh attempts which have not been particularly well designed so what you what you really need to do is create an institute in collaboration with the private sector uh, in which these things are explored and maybe not sort of spend all your effort looking at the the ultimate cure for disease X, but actually looking at things which it can be utilized much more easily uh, without the extensive kinds of testing that needs to go on for human medicines. Uh, so one of my favorite examples is you, you take uh, the leaf cutting ant uh, 
which is the most socially complex of all ant species and lives in colonies of like a million ants all over the place. Uh, and they can, you know, they can defoliate trees overnight. And what they're actually doing is taking those pieces of leaves down into their nest uh, where they use them as mulch for a fungus farm and they live on the fungus. So they're basically farmer ants. Well, clearly it makes no sense uh, for leaf cutting ants to bring parts of leaves down to their fungus farm that have natural fungicides in them. So if you watch the ants, you can figure out which trees they avoid, and then you can test those for natural fungicides. Uh, so that's sort of putting in an ecological screen as opposed to doing a lot of random testing. And I think there are a whole bunch of things that could be done like that that could bring economic return and help support the larger exploration of useful biological adaptations and compounds in the rainforest. I listened to a fascinating, this is a slight um, diversion, but I listened to a fascinating podcast uh, episode that I think went on for almost three hours with Paul Stamets, um, uh, the mycelial expert, about the incredible power of different fungi species and some of them that are shown to have really remarkable antiviral properties that, for example, can significantly tackle viral loads in uh, honeybees, which, as I'm sure you're very aware, are suffering huge collapses in their populations in the US and other places around the world. So, yeah, the the fungus link there is really interesting. So anyway, it's just, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a biological library that is beyond even describing in its total potential. Um, so I want to change tack slightly. Um, so what what's the role of um, language and having words like oh, okay. at our fingertips in helping us to not only describe the natural world but also tell stories about it and perhaps even conserve it? So so the interesting thing is that. We didn't actually have the phrase biological diversity until 1980, uh, which didn't prevent people thinking about species diversity uh, from a scientific perspective. Uh, I mean, vis-a-vis -vis my own thesis, but um, in terms of thinking about the variety of nature as something which was important to uh, conserve, uh, it really was an obstacle not to have a phrase like that. And I, I remember the first time I met Everett O. Wilson, we were having lunch up in Woods Hole, and in retrospect, it's clear we were talking about biological diversity. We just didn't I have the phrase for it. Mm. Um, and it wasn't until 1980 when three of us actually independently used the phrase, uh, Ed and myself and uh, uh, Elliot Norse at the Council on Environmental Quality, uh, 
And neither of us was thinking that we were actually coining a new term. Uh, none of us was paying attention to who was first. Um, and it wasn't until some years later that uh, Elliot actually went back and figured out that, you know, by a little bit, uh, I was first. So that's, that's how it happened. Um, and leading on from that, I know that, um, or I've at least read, and again, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that you've taken some fairly senior and influential people from the world of politics and from other spheres to visit the Amazon to, to one of the camps that you work out of. So it seems apparent that you think that experience plays as much of a role as scientific evidence does, or at least a role alongside scientific evidence in helping to convince people. Have there been any particular experiences or particular people who you've taken to show the Amazon where you've really seen that have an impact on their thinking or their viewpoint? Well, I mean, first of all, you know, actually going and experiencing it firsthand uh, makes it tangible in a way that no amount of reading uh, or listening to people talk about it can actually do. Uh, and so to actually be out in the forest and unconnected to the rest of the world by internet now that we have that uh, and to understand how the Amazon works as a system, which we talked about earlier uh, and to listen to the living forest, you know, for 24 hours at a time for two or three days uh, has a, tremendous impact that is more than just sort of the intellectual construct. I mean, you really internalize the incredible diversity of the forest, but also that we actually reside on a living planet and that you're in the heart of it when you're there. Uh, and that's, that's a pretty transformational experience for almost everybody who's, who's done that trip. Have there been any, putting aside kind of the scientific value, have there been any particularly emotional, emotionally resonant or important experiences in the Amazon, perhaps encounters with wildlife for you? Um, and perhaps if asking you to think back through all of your time there is, is a bit unfair, maybe, it, maybe in your most recent trip or one of your most recent trips. Well, you know, the truth is there's, there's always something that's new and different. And, uh, you know, uh, this must have been last July or something like that. So I, I arrive at Camp 41, my favorite camp, which is an intact forest from there all the way to the Guianas. Uh, and somebody had just put out a camera trap uh, and just and had this photograph from the previous night of an ocelot. Well, I have never seen an ocelot in that forest, but clearly they are there, right? Um, and so that was pretty interesting. And more recently, by the way, it, the camera trap picked up a, a mother puma and a cub, uh, which again, you rarely ever see because they see us, but they avoid us. Uh, but anyway, that that particular trip 
where I saw the photograph of the ocelot, uh, that, that that night, you know, sleeping in my hammock, it's like 4 a.m. and I decide I'm going to go to the latrine and I, I start down the trail to the latrine and all of a sudden I start sniffing this sort of musky smell. And then, then it, it completely hit me. The, the ocelot had decided that our latrines were our territorial markers and it had decided to mark its territory right on the path to our latrines. So it, it becomes a quite living experience. Let's put it that way. That's really wonderful. <laughs> um, I, I lived in uh, the Bornean rainforest for a year and I've had similar experiences, particularly when you're going to the latrine at night of um, encountering various types of wildlife. Um, Tom, I want to change tack again slightly. And one of the reasons that I'm so excited to be speaking to you today is because I've spent a lot of the last few years working on climate change and energy policy, um, particularly thinking through its overlaps with biodiversity and nature and its impacts on it, but also the role that um, that nature and the land and natural habitats can play in helping us to mitigate and adapt to climate change. And I was reading through some of the things that you wrote, you know, years, if not a couple of decades ago, and um, the things that you were writing then were clearly way ahead of trend in terms of the policy that people are just starting to think about now. Um, the IPCC, the, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, recently released its report saying that we need to keep temperature rises below 1.5 degrees at most. Could you say a little bit perhaps about why, what the difference is for biodiversity of going a little or a lot above that 1.5 degree threshold compared to remaining below it. So, um, I have actually been studying the interaction between climate change and biodiversity for, for more than 30 years. And in fact, just have a, completely new book out with Lee Hanna, which publishes on the 9th of January. So when we when we first were writing about it, uh, and at that point I was doing it with Rob Peters, uh, basically all you could do is look at what happened in the geologic past and try and project that into the future and try and imagine what it would be like. By the time of the second book, which I did do with Lee, uh, which came out in 1992, you could see the fingerprints of climate change on the biology of the planet anywhere you chose to look. Uh, but it was also, you know, the year that science woke up and suddenly realized, oh my goodness, all this CO2 in the atmosphere is actually making the oceans more acid. So there was only one sentence in that book about ocean acidification. Uh, and now we have this new book, and it's become abundantly clear that you can model the climate as much as you want. You can model the vegetation as much as you want, but it will never tell you how sensitive it is because that comes down to the idiosyncratic biology of, in some cases, 
just a couple species. Uh, so in the oceans, it's the coral animals uh, ejecting the the partner alga, which is the fundamental relationship on which all tropical coral reef systems exist. That leads to coral bleaching. So last year, 60% of the the Great Barrier Reef off off Australia bleached. They're worried that this year it might even be 100%. Uh, another example is the coniferous forests of Western North America, where the warmer climate has tipped the balance in favor of native bark beetles. So more survive the winter and they get in an extra generation and there are places where up to 70% of the trees are dead. And we also know historically that from when glaciers, glaciers came and went, that biological communities don't move as a unit. It's the individual species that move, uh, each at their own rate and in their own direction. And then whichever ones survive and get to a particular place, assemble into a new community, which is really hard to even imagine in advance. Uh, so basically, Lee and I concluded, and we did an editorial about this uh, in Science Advances in August before the IPCC report, uh, saying that at more than one and a half degrees, the planet is not manageable biologically. And we need to really respect that upper boundary. Uh, and that sounds like a pretty grim warning and it was in a way, but we coupled it with a partial solution, not the total solution, but a really significant partial solution, which is we now know as of January 2018 that the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere from destroyed and degraded ecosystems uh, in the last centuries uh, is a much bigger number than we knew before. And that it in fact is equal to the amount of carbon that remains in extant ecosystems. And what that means is ecosystem restoration, whether it's reforestation or restoring a graded, degraded uh, agricultural land or a coastal wetland, uh, a grassland, uh, a mangrove forest, uh, doing that kind of restoration at scale can actually take tens of parts per million of CO2 out of the atmosphere. And to understand why that's important, uh, pre-industrial levels were 280 parts per million. We're currently in excess of 400 parts per million. And to try and stick ultimately at something close to one and a half degrees, we actually need to head back down in the direction of 350 parts per million. And the biology of the planet is capable of doing that. And in fact, twice in the history of life on Earth, there were unbelievably high CO2 levels, mostly from geologic processes, brought down by the planet itself uh, to pre-industrial levels. It just took tens of millions of years, and we don't have that 
luxury, but we do have the ability to restore ecosystems and pull some of that CO2 back. It brings me on nicely, actually, to, to my next question. So um, you were instrumental in the innovation of the concept of, of depth and nature, and maybe you can say a little bit about that in a moment. But um, what I also want to ask is, so today there's been there's been a new warning from global investors that we need to tackle climate change and tackle that level of carbon in the atmosphere in order to avoid a global financial crash. Um, do you think that building on the depth of nature concept or, or having had experience of being involved in developing it, are there new innovative financial mechanisms that you see on the horizon that might help us to tackle the loss of biodiversity and uh, the problem of climate change you know for example have we explored enough insurance companies and uh, purchasing of conservation measures or climate change measures that would reduce risk or do you think for example whereas debt for nature was based on developing country debt do you think there's an opportunity in the growing levels of developed country debt to for example China um, and developing a scheme around that I'd just be I suppose I'd just be interested in your thoughts on future financial models or mechanisms that might achieve achieve the same things but via a different route so i don't have a specific new innovative way to use uh financial instruments uh but i'm sure there are there uh opportunities uh it's just a matter of thinking creatively about it and also just doing some of the basic economics correctly uh we tend to do a lot of things without even estimating the maintenance costs of what we've created, for example. Um, there's a wonderful analysis of uh, the practice of essentially destroying mangroves to create shrimp farms. And if you do that analysis uh, in conventional terms, well, yeah, you, you, of course you destroy the mangroves and create a sh uh, shrimp aquaculture. Uh, but if you redo the analysis and remove the, the subsidies in this particular instance, uh, it actually becomes so marginal that you probably would hesitate before you would do it. But then if in addition, you add in the value to fisheries of the nursery function that mangroves provide, you would, you would never dream of doing it. In fact, it makes it a strong argument for undoing all shrimp aquaculture that exists uh, and putting it somewhere else and restoring the mangroves, capturing that carbon uh, and the benefit to fisheries. One of the other um, pieces of news that I've seen today is, uh, and perhaps this isn't news to to someone like you who's as immersed in this world as you are, but um, it's being presented as news in the UK at least, is about the huge quantity of life beneath the Earth's surface. And there's some research published today by scientists at the Deep Carbon Observatory I suppose I'd be interested in hearing your reflection on the fact that there's apparently, to someone like me at least, still so much 
that we're discovering about life on life on earth and what i suppose what that means to you what reflections you have on that and how that makes you feel so in one sense you know the this the relatively small fraction of life on earth that's been studied and and uh sort of recorded by science uh says that there's an extraordinary intellectual and scientific adventure out there uh, discovering the rest of life on Earth and what it can do and how it does it. Uh, and certainly soil biodiversity is one of those great frontiers, uh, relatively neglected overall. overall. But soil biodiversity is what makes the difference between essentially dirt and soil uh, and actually soil formation uh, is an important way of removing CO2 from the atmosphere. Uh, but in any sense, there's incredible amount of carbon accumulation in healthy ecosystems. And you take something like the American prairies, uh, most of which have been converted to agriculture. Uh, the soils there are sometimes 12 feet deep. The root systems of the native prairie grasses go down that far. Uh, and until there was, you know, a plow that allowed you to break up that sod, uh, that was a huge carbon reservoir. And of course, when you have carbon in the soil, you have high soil fertility. Uh, so we need to think about transforming most of agriculture into something that actually builds up soil carbon as opposed to mining it. Uh, and, you know, I mean, if you look at the soil carbon debt maps of the world, uh, most of the places where there's the biggest debt are where there's been the most agriculture, whether it's the American Midwest or the Middle East or parts of Europe uh, and, and China for that matter and India. Uh, so we just have to start thinking differently and recognizing that it's a living planet. Uh, and if we manage it with respect, uh, it actually has tremendous benefit for us. And that, that does move me on towards my next couple of questions. So you, you just split your time between your research, but also you've got a huge number of various advisory roles and you're, you have used and you are continuing to use your, your research to influence policy. And I imagine you split your time between the office and being in the Amazon and between meeting, meeting rooms with decision makers as well. Is there one of those that brings you more pleasure than the others? Yeah, well, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I think if I couldn't get away to the forest every once in a while, I might have a lower energy level to put into those other activities. Uh, and it doesn't, it doesn't have to be long, you know, so I will... I'll be going with a group on December 28th and coming back on the 3rd of January. Uh, and only three of those days will actually be spending the night out in the forest. 
but it's it's enough to certainly recharge my batteries and make me willing to endure airplane flights and meetings and and windowless rooms and whatever it takes to advance the agenda. And when you are trying to advance the agenda, are there any particular questions that you pose to decision makers or policy makers when you're trying to change their thinking or influence them? Or maybe it's not questions, maybe it's particular tactics of presenting information to them that you've developed over over time. Well, you know, it's it's a combination of doing a lot of listening so that you actually understand where they're coming from. Uh, and then using pretty straightforward, non-technical language as much as possible. Uh, and, you know, generally presenting something as good common sense, but in ways that you're not saying this makes common sense, but leads the person you're talking with to reach that conclusion. Um, and as will become clear in the in the in the introduction to this episode when I when I record it, um, you do a huge amount of different things, and you've you've had a huge number of roles over the years. Have you got any particular kind of criteria or system for choosing which things you say yes to and which things you decline? So I, I you know, by and large, I try and choose things where where I can make a difference, uh, which I don't mean in an egotistical way, but it's where I can bring something to the table that might not already be there yet. Um, and I really, I really try and avoid getting into things for the sake of getting into things. Uh, and you know, I just you know, I'm sitting there and I'm looking at what the big problems of the world are, and the ones that that I'm more equipped to make a contribution to, and trying to concentrate on those. So I don't get deeply into I don't know. I'm trying to think of it uh, into. Uh, agricultural policy but then again you know looking ahead uh it's perfectly possible to feed the coming billions of people on this planet by changing the agricultural trajectory uh in a way that gives everybody an adequate diet uh, but basically doesn't require destruction of another square foot of existing nature um, and that's the combination of eliminating food waste which is like up to 40 percent of all food improving productivity judiciously in some places changing diet like our doctors are telling us to um, and more than anything right now i'm trying to figure out how to make a difference with what I characterize as a generally disorderly trajectory uh, in development. Uh, 
uh, where sort of the larger context and the increasingly constraining biological systems of the planet uh, are recognized uh, and respected. Could you say a little bit more about what you mean by, sorry, a generally disorderly trajectory in development? Well, you know, I mean, so so think about think about Africa, right? Uh, with coming billions of people there, uh, all of who deserve an adequate uh, and reasonable existence. Uh, how can you feed all those people and still essentially protect most of remaining nature? Uh, and that involves thinking differently about infrastructure. Uh, it involves thinking differently about the quality of life. Uh, it involves thinking about the importance of sustainable cities because the more people can uh, essentially uh, achieve their aspirations in a sustainable city as opposed to doing deforestation somewhere, uh, uh, the better off we'll be. Uh, but so many decisions are made separately, particularly in ministries of economics, uh, where a lot of these things which actually do have economic meaning uh, aren't recognized as such. Uh, and thinking differently about infrastructure. I mean, do you really need to, to build a road through the middle of some wild place in in Tanzania or somewhere as opposed to uh, finding a different solution or build a road around it rather than through it. Uh, a whole series of things like that. Okay. Um, I've just got a couple of questions left to wrap, wrap up with, Tom. So in, in one of the uh, interviews with you that I listened to, um, you said, and, and correct me if I've sort of mischaracterized this slightly, that you tried to start each day thinking about the the challenges to biodiversity as kind of a new task and not to focus too much on the previous day or the previous week. Is there anything that you do at the beginning of each day to kind of achieve that reset or, you know, any particular routines or rituals that are part of the beginning of each day for you? So I don't know quite how I actually arrived at that, but it was a long time ago. <laughs> um, and in fact, it's a way of trying to start each day looking at what's possible and desirable uh, as opposed to what might have happened the day before, whether it was a success or uh, a huge new challenge arriving uh, for sustainable development. Uh, and it it's a good way to avoid taking the reverses uh, in particular, taking them personally. Just look at it as, you know, here's a new puzzle and what's the best way I can make a difference today? And is that just a thought process that you go through or do you do sort of journaling or anything to kind of help to facilitate that? 
So I think it's actually an attitude, <laughs> and uh, and so you know, as soon as I'm up and the mind is on in the morning, I'm sort of thinking about the things I should be doing, and um, some of them are carried over from the day before. There's always you know a big pile of things to be written here, uh, and I'm suddenly very behind these days um but uh it's just you know it's it's just a very practical way of dealing with it with you know a very large agenda which you can't sort of look at to the point where it seems overwhelming and you know what difference could i possibly make uh to actually thinking about, you know, what things can I actually change or start that would lead to change? Okay, thanks. Um, are there any books that you particularly often give to other people as a gift? Well, that's interesting because uh, I'm just giving a brand new 50-year edition of Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. Mm. And I do tend to think of certain books as foundational. Uh, and in the United States, I, th I think, or North America, I think there's, in the 20th century, the three most important books are that one uh, and Aldo Leopold's a Sand, Sand County Almanac uh, where the land ethic uh, was put forth and which today I think has to be enlarged to think of it as as essentially you know the planet ethic and the third one is one that usually surprises people until they think about it and that is Roger Torrey Peterson's Field Guide to the Birds, which basically was the first access, easy access to nature uh, for the American public and actually revolutionized field guides and made them easy for people to use. And so suddenly people had access to nature in a way they never had before. And there were only 3,000 copies printed in the first press run, which was basically done as a favor. Uh, and it, it sold out in a flash. And of course, Roger Torrey Peterson went on to become the world's most famous bird watcher. Um, so I do, yes, I do find books that uh, I really like others to know about. And the one that I'm about to start reading myself uh, is actually fiction, and it's called Overstory. And it's about essentially communication and the way trees work, uh, based on sound science, but it's, it's, it's put in a fictional form. Uh, so uh, I'm really looking forward to getting my nose in that myself. I think I heard a review of that a couple of months ago around the time it came out and it sounded incredible. Yeah, I think that's the one that I 
I heard of as well. Um, so just the last couple of questions. Are there any people up close or who from afar have have in the past or maybe today act as inspiration or as mentors for you? Well, you know, I have a, I mean, certainly I benefited hugely in the past and Roger Peterson was in fact one of my mentors. Um, and the ecologist G. Evelyn Hutchinson, the founder of Modern Ecology. Um, Dylan Ripley, secretary of the Smithsonian, who once said that every biologist with a conscience should spend time on conservation. Um, but I would say, you know, today, since I'm, you know, getting up there, you know, I have a lot of colleagues who I hugely respect uh, and love to engage with. And not the least of those is David Attenborough, who somehow has managed uh, to retain the secret of still being 14 years old inside, even though he's past 90. Yeah, it's a, it's a good skill to have. So that's a good it's a good role model. <laughs> Definitely. Um, finally, Tom, is there a somewhere outdoors or a natural place that you visit regularly? Maybe it's every day or every week or once every couple of weeks at the moment, and maybe it's <clears throat> maybe it's where you are right now, or maybe it's in the Amazon that that means a lot to you, or that just you know is part of your part of your routine. So I I live in a house uh, which is about 25 minutes if I get up early enough uh, from downtown Washington. And it won't sound very old to anybody in Europe, but around here it's really old because it was built probably around 1730. And it has the special good fortune of being a neighbor to a school with 300 acres of forest. So it's like I get to live in the country, uh, and yet I'm 25 minutes from where I am right now in downtown Washington. Uh, and being able to go back there uh, at the end of every day and start every day there uh, is is just a wonderful experience, just listening to the birds, seeing them if I haven't already left before sunrise. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's an anchor for me. Okay, thanks, Tom. Um, is there anything else you would like to say or anything you're expecting me to ask about that I haven't? No, but let me just offer the following. Um, that there's nothing quite so magical as another living creature. And if most of us could stop uh, every once in a while and just appreciate something like that, and particularly open the eyes and hearts of young people to that, uh, it could be a real change agent. 
and so I recommend getting outside as much as one can and sharing it with other people. That's wonderful sound advice um, that I wholeheartedly agree with. And that's a, a really lovely note to end on. So thank you for sharing that. And Tom, thank you so much for your your time in your in your incredibly busy schedule. I'm really, really grateful for you sharing it with me and with the people who listen to this podcast. Well, thank you. And thank you for uh, coming up with such great questions. Thanks. Well, great to speak to you again. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation and you can find more of them at wildvoicesproject.org on Twitter at wildvoicesproj or by subscribing to the podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks very much and until next time.